0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Only Nurse Chapel episode. No, really. This this is it. This is the one she gets. You're probably thinking, what? W- why? Well, that's a good question You see originally. This is actually an episode that focused around someone else entirely. It was then rewritten to focus on a member of the crew. Thus, the guest star of the week would be the one who had the pre-existing connection with Corby in order to add more gravitas to what happens. And then he was like, you know what? Let's make it... Let's make it Chapel. That sounds like a good idea. Now, what's funny is, I do kind of like her inclusion here. And it is probably her best overall episode, at least so far. But that's kind of a sad thing to say, because it is her only episode. And, well, this isn't written for Nurse Chapel, you know what I mean? If I'm not making my point clear, they didn't change the dialogue. They didn't alter the character. All they did was change the name. So this is uh Majel Barrett playing a character who has been reskinned as Nurse Chapel. Sense, Meg. So it just kind of doesn't really work the way it probably should. This is also when they brought Fred Steiner in to do music. You're probably thinking, who the heck is that? Actually, I, I keep saying that. I wonder how many of you are like, I know that name, Lore. What? What's, what do you want about? He did a lot of music, but the most important musics are the ones he did that we'll be repeating many times in this show. You've probably heard the danger theme several times throughout the course of this show. And you heard it starting right here. It was actually designed to be Rooks, or Ruck's theme. Excuse me. Ruck's theme. Now, this is a weird one. Check this out, okay? So, Robert Block wrote this, along with two other episodes, uh, Wolf in the Fold and Cat's Paw. However, for reasons that have never been made clear or reached the light of day from my understanding substantial rewrites were necessary and everyone who talks about this mentions we don't know what the rewrites were we don't know why it was necessary it's just they they did rewrites okay sure they were doing rewrites and by the i mean roddenberry was doing rewrites during the shoot now at this point in history as i think i've mentioned a few times it was pretty average to have a six-day shoot this episode stretched on and several sources cite the, re- the rewriting of the script on camera, you know, while they're filming, to be the reason why it was pushed back two days, to be an eight-day shoot. Now you're thinking, well, why am I bringing that up? Well, James Goldstone was brought in to re- direct this episode. Now, he directed Where No Man Has Gone Before, and this would be his last directing gig here. Why? Well, now, that's a funny question. If you ask him that, he would say, oh, it's because I only came on as a favor. I just did this to help out uh, Justman, I believe, yep, Justman in particular, who practically begged me to come on, like, hey, I need your help, and he had a free week, so, yeah, sure, I'll go ahead and direct your episode for you. If you asked other sources, including the studio, it was because he went over budget, because the film went over the six-day mark, and so they axed him. If you're paying attention, that is not the first time the studio has used that as, as an excuse to get rid of a director. In fact, it's probably the single biggest reason why they were chipper-shredding through directors through the early parts of Season 1. By the way, I want you to do me a favor and remember that six-day thing, because that's going to be important in, like, a year <laughs> when we get to Season 2. It's going to be a while, is what I'm trying to say. But it'll come up. But yeah, so he got kicked out. Uh, cool. Nevertheless, uh, this is a good time to mention Robert Block... Uh, The guy I mentioned earlier, I'll talk about this now because I'll forget to talk about it in Season 3 if I don't talk about it now. He actually was really involved in and enjoyed working on TOS by his own accounts up until Season 3. And he joined a large group of people, a lot of people left working on Star Trek in Season 3. We'll discuss the specifics of that when we get there, but whew. Now the relevance for right now, though is he was working on this episode and tried to make it as good as he possibly can and worked really closely with someone named William Theiss, which I'm probably completely mispronouncing his name. Now you're probably thinking, who the heck is that? No, I'm I'm sorry, I'll stop making the gag. You know who that is. It's the costume guy. You've ever heard of his theory of costume sexiness? I'll (laughs) quote it for you, word for it, because I have it on my second monitor here. The degree to which a costume is considered sexy is directly dependent upon how accident-prone it appears to be. If you've seen... uh, Oh gosh, what's the full list? There's the woman from Who Mourns Adonis. um, You know, the the Greco thing. There's Andrea in this episode. There's the woman on the the, the Triskelion planet. Gamesters by Triskelion, I think, is the episode. You, You probably are noticing a trend here. He also did some of the stuff for Justice over in TNG. And a few other things, including the outfit that Tasha Yar wore during The Naked Now. And the outfit Riker wore during... Uh the episode where he goes to the matriarchal planet. I can't remember the name of that episode right now. All that season one TNG stuff. Hugh actually was kicked out of Star Trek um, after Bob Fletcher was brought in, and there's probably some politics going on there. It's hard to gauge, but there's a lot of signs that were, there was some infighting. Bob Fletcher, by the way, is the gentleman who designed the modern look of the Klingons, the ridges and all that, and also the what's usually referred to as the Star Trek movie uniform, the one from Star Trek 2 and onwards also my favorite uniform in Star Trek history. Although I will admit, the late DS9 uniform works for me as well. Anyways, so William was brought back in with TNG, like so many other people, I've been pointing these out as we go, in order to work on the core cast, and he left because of Meiselish. Wow, I'm, I'm just hearing a whole lot of that as we go through this, aren't we? Honestly, I'm starting to wonder if it's an excuse. Season 1 TNG had an extremely... Troub- troub- troublematic, yes, it's a new word, Troublematic pro- uh, production. And uh, Ron health was already kind of going down and Star Trek was kind of entering a new phase and Berman kind of started going to bat for it as of Season 2, which is one of the big things which literally led to Star Trek actually becoming the modern thing and who knows. Meislich was apparently universally despised and he's a lawyer, sorry for being redundant, so he was an acceptable target. Of course, that's just a theory. I don't actually know. We did actually... Let's talk about something positive. We have Ted Cassidy in this episode. You may know him as Lurch. Please tell me someone remembers him as Lurch. He plays Ruck in this episode. He also played Balok's puppet over in the Cobra Bat Maneuver. He also does the voice for the uh, the Gorn Commander in whatever that episode is coming up. But let's talk about the episode proper. Let, let's, let's talk about something here. So, Nurse Chapel has this long-standing love that has never been mentioned before and will never be mentioned again, because this was not written for her, as I already mentioned, reskin job. Anyways, this long lost love, which is the entire reason she left her career, her promising career, in order to join a ship, any ship, in order to get here and check that out. Okay. That kind of lines up, sort of. I mean, it's not like she can directly request someone to go here, right? It's not like they haven't already sent two expeditions here. Oh, wait... As weird as this may sound, I think that's the worst part of the episode as far as logic, funnily enough. The fact that they sent two expeditions that found nothing. And then Kirk shows up and he immediately contacts them. Hey Kirk, I'm here, I'm right here. What? The only explanation I've ever come up with for this is that he specifically was banking on Kirk's reputation somehow to be totally cool with his let's replace all of humanity with androids plan which I'm not sure why he thinks Kirk, of all people, would be cool for that, but whatever. Maybe Picard? I don't know. Anyways, so, but the two expeditions that never found anything, why? Now, you see, the thing is, if they were, if Rook is rucketing up, then what happened to those two previous expeditions is that people died, but no mention is made of that. They came and they found no one, and they left. So this is one of those doomed hope kind of situations where there's nobody possibly left, right? Why not just eject the two expeditions entirely from the narrative? It, it serves no purpose there, and it actually detracts from the story. Forgive me for spending so much time on this, but it really made me just kind of start doing some mental loops in my head to try and explain how any of this lined up. Let's move on. So, hey, he's back. Um, you need to beam down alone, Captain. Raise eyebrow. <laughs> now, what's really hysterical about this is he's totally cool with that idea. He is totally cool with beaming down alone. Except he does want to bring Chapel, you know, long-lost love. Okay, cool. Beaming down with two, totally acceptable. If he had actually met Kirk at the designated point, at the designated time, none of this episode would have happened. No, seriously. Because Kirk gets down and he looks around and is like, oh, he's not here. Okay, well, I'm going to presume it's a trap now and take some standard security precautions. He is cautious. So he brings down two security personnel, leaves one at the door, and takes one with him. Okay, all of this makes perfect sense. None of that would have happened, and Ruck would not have had to kill both of them if he had been at the freaking designated spot when he said he was going to be there. Good job, Corby. Don't you have, like, an internal chronometer or something? That stupid chassis, by the way. Spoilers. Corby is an android, and I'm going to point that out a few times because it helps to indicate the nature of the episode. Moving on. So then Matthews dies. Actually, no, no, before I go into that. Uh, there's a really nice, really subtle touch, and I wanted to give some special praise to him. Kirk leaves the bridge, and Chapel goes after her. Uhura, like, jumps out of her chair and goes up and just gives, like, a really quick embrace uh, and a cheek kiss to, to Chapel. Like, oh, congrats. You know, it's, there's no dialogue. It's understated, but it's actually a really nice, tiny little character moment of, hey, you know, she's just so happy for her. I just wanted to comment on it because it's good, and I like seeing that kind of background stuff. Moving on. So then they go down, and then Matthews dies. No the first red shirt death, or is it you be the judge? I'm going to pretend I'm William Riker hang on, let me grow more beard. There we go. Does this qualify as the first red shirt death? Now, I know what you're thinking, Laura. He's wearing a red shirt, and he's dead, yeah. The point of the concept of the redshirt death is to kill someone off cheaply and quickly as a cheap and easy way of establishing that the threat is serious. Do you think this qualifies? No judgment. I'm just asking because I've heard this debated before and I figured I'd bring it up. I think it does because the whole point is to establish to the audience that something's up. You'll notice after he falls to his death, the camera sh- shunts up for a second and we see Ruck quickly, you know, with treating, so it's like, oh, okay, so there is actually a danger here. Now the audience knows things are serious because someone has died. Okay, cool. You'll also notice that um, Rayburn, who is the second shirt, follows him very, very shortly and is actually killed on camera, thus again establishing the threat of rock and what's going on. So I think this qualifies. What are your thoughts? It could probably be argued that this has happened prior to now, depending on how you want to define it. Remember the guy who gets strangled to death in Where No Man Has Gone Before? Anyways. <clears throat> so, Corby shows up. Hi. Um, this is a weird scene. I do want to give special praise. There's this great bit where Kirk you know, dodges away and then shoots Brown who is revealed to be an android. I'm curious what setting he had it on that that actually managed to expose the circuitry. You'd think it would be on stun, right? If it's on stun, are they just that fragile? I mean, think Corby's hand is damaged just by a random tussle, so maybe they really are that fragile. Either way, Ruck, that is to say, uh, Ted Cassidy, then grabs Kirk's arm and bodily lifts him up and holds him up like this against the wall. It's a really good effect, especially for the time. And I just wanted to give special praise to the wire work and the general construction of however they did that. I'm not actually sure. I, I am presuming there's wire work. I wasn't able to find details. But the way they get that effect across and get across the hugeness and the strength of Ruck is really good, especially for a show in the 60s. Definite props. What they do not get props for is the Styrofoam cave, especially the stalagmite Mite that Kirk grabs in order to attack Ruck with, which is just really pathetic, and it it looks like styrofoam. <laughs> Shrug. So, Corby constantly argues, what I've discovered is amazing, what I've discovered is amazing, what I've discovered is amazing, but I'm not going to tell you yet because it's not time for the script to tell you yet. And he just drags it out for what is effectively no reason and constantly avoids questions. Even when asked point blank, I'll answer all your questions later. You, you could just answer that, that right now. Kirk, of course, asks a a dominant question right off the bat. Where's my crewman? Where's my other crewman? Did you kill? Did he kill my other crewman? You say you want us no harm, and yet he killed people, and yet he only does things that you tell him to do. Now, actually... What's funny about this is this is t- this is decent writing, with this sequence of events here. Because the whole point is that Corby is not actually in control. That is arguably the big thematic point. He thinks he's established absolute control. Isaac Asimov's story, we're walking, we're walking. And he has nothing. Hell, they all die in the end. Vaporized. Erased from existence. Sorry, back to the future brain. Chapel is noticeably upset at Andrea. And I don't blame her, because Andrea is really, really sexy. What? I'm not ashamed to admit it. I wish I looked that good, and I'm a guy. Holy crap. Are you kidding me? I look down, and I'm like, No, no, I'm not showing off my sides. Holy crap. But I'm not just memeing here. I do actually have a question for you. Why, um... Why? Why everything? So... Brown was made by Corby after Corby transferred his consciousness into Corby Android. Okay, with that. So that means, based on evidence, it's exceptionally likely that he also made Andrea. Now, they never clarify. Ruck has been around since before. But Andrea is possibly one of the newer models. That means Corby, after having put, been put into an Android body, made Andrea, made her look like that and made her wear that. So, yeah, I'm kind of with Nurse Chapel on why she would be a little bit frigid around her and a little bit upset about the fact that her fiancé has been gallivanting around that for some time. Holy crap. Now... (laughs) What's really hysterical is he tries to shut this down. Oh, no, 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 no. I haven't been cheating on you. Here, I'll prove it. I'll prove. First of all, I'll go way out of my way to prove that these things are humanoid in almost every way. That they have a pulse and breath and lifelike skin. And the sex is amazing. And now I'm going to show you. Apparently the kisses are amazing. Because he's like, okay, here, kiss Kirk. And now slap him. It's like, Okay. And he does this to establish that there's no emotion, insert data reference here. That's his big argument that he hasn't been cheating on her, that the near-perfect android replica of a young woman who is extremely attractive and does everything he orders it to does not have emotion. That's his argument, because the idea of a guy cheating on a woman for any reason other than love is completely nonsensical. All cynicism aside, I do find it amusing that that is the tact he takes. Especially since, to be perfectly blunt, I don't actually think he was cheating on her. I just—I have no idea what to make of this whole situation. No, really. In universe, I got—I got no answer. You got one? I'm listening because I don't know. They ran out of fabric. <laughs> sure. Uh so Corby uh, says he'll answer all the questions, and he doesn't. And. Corby's endgame here is just... He wants to replace all of humanity with androids to make a perfect utopia. Where do I begin? <laughs> wow. I can make the Picard reference. I could make the Mass Effect reference. I mean, I, I, I could go in so many directions here. I think what I'm going to say in the end, though is it is amusing to me because what we're seeing actually makes sense in character doesn't it? One of the points that's made consistently is that despite being these superior androids they're actually inferior intellectually that while they have the same memories and while they can compute equations anything with genuine nuance anything that requires more of a gray area when it comes to emotion or intangible concepts like society or uh, feelings or interconnect interconnections between familiars, any, any of that stuff, any of what I tend to call the intangible stuff, they just can't handle. They barely know how to comprehend it. So it makes perfect sense that Android Corby, because remember, he's an android, would be the kind of person who would think such a simplistic solution as just replace us all with androids would solve all of society's woes. He is, of course, astonishingly wrong on that point because he's only thinking surface level, because he doesn't have the complexity to think properly. Oh, by the way, that very point I just made is my theory as to why these beings are not properly sentient or sapient. In short, unlike Data, who I would argue is a sentient, sapient being, thanks to a a degree of droid effect, which happened over the 20 or so years he's been around before Season 1, I don't think these guys have that at all. I don't think they have the sufficient complexity, and I definitely don't think they've had the external influence necessary to actually have droid effect take effect. take effect, and be considered sentient sapient. What do you guys think? As always, questions, questions, lots of questions. So, Kirk fills his head with bias against Spock, and specifically uses the term half-breed. That's actually kind of brilliant. I'll give you that one episode. This then leads to... uh, Why is it always these little, like, they're like bits of celery that have been painted. You ever notice that? That's just like the food. It's been the food in so many episodes up till now, including this one. Just, I I don't know why they decided that was futuristic food. Maybe they're protein gels or something? I don't know. Either way, they put up some food. You'll notice that android Kirk is noticeably different in attitude than Kirk. First of all, he's a little bit more crisp and clipped in how he acts. Credit. Credit where credit is due. Also, he's got a superiority complex. I know what you're thinking. Uh, Kirk's got an ego. No, 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 no. Kirk has an ego. Android Kirk thinks he's superior. There's a difference between data and lore. No relation. It, despite the appearances. <laughs> this also then leads to Kirk d- making his big daring es- escape by choking Corby, who I remind you is an android. And here's the catch. Two possibilities here. Either A, this is bad writing because they didn't think about it yet, because they didn't have a twist yet or they didn't think about setting it up. Or B, the androids need to breathe just like we do and therefore can be choked just like we can. I suppose I could give them that as a possibility. They are supposed to be, you know, they actually have skin and they have a pulse and all that. So, okay, okay, I'm willing to give it some leeway. So Kirk escapes. (sighs) And then we have Ruck's theme. It's probably the biggest uh, showcasing of Ruck's theme in the whole episode. Ruck, uh... You know, they struggle and they fight and he falls, uh, good, good, good work on Ted Cassidy's part. He looks confused and conflicted as Kirk is there until finally he le- reaches down and lifts Kirk up because, well, basically he has conflicting programming. He has multiple directives which have the same priority, and when you have two directives of, of exactly the same priority that are in conflict with, conflict with each other, you got a problem anybody who's done any kind of programming will tell you this this is a bad thing this is one of the reasons most programming programming languages have a um, oh, I can't remember what it's called like a termination switch basically where if it gets stuck in a particular processing loop it's like okay after a while we're done we we've calculated it to pi to the billionth digit we're done now or something to you know arbitrarily like basically flip a coin and decide based on that we humans of course being fleshy squishy terrible human beings have no particular problem with that since we are not limited in how we act and think. We simply act and think. That's how that works. So then, (laughs) Android Kirk goes up. I do like this, even though it's completely unnecessary. It doesn't actually lead to, the conclu- to the, this episode being solved at all. Spock does not come in and save the day. But I do like how Kirk calls him a half-breed, and Spock picks up on it instantly. Thank you, episode. For, <laughs> thank you for not pulling the I-can't-tell-someone's-acting-out-of-character thing, which, as I've mentioned several times, drives me bonkers. No, he picks up on it immediately, says, the security team. Kirk then really kisses Andrea. I mean, I can't blame him, but no, no, the, the point that is being made here, and this is where I have a little theory crafting to do. She can't process that. She can't fully process the complexity of what's being done to her and in, internally with regards to her. She's still got her directives, but now there's this other stuff that is simply too complex to be broken down into a base equation. And she doesn't know how to process that. And so she just kind of it's out and then leaves. Demands that the other Kirk kiss her. He says no, and then she shoots him to death. But of course, that's Android Kirk, just getting rid of our loose ends here. And I find myself wondering. So, Corby mentions that he could, they can transfer people into androids. Now, again, the whole theme is that that, that wouldn't work because it's too simplistic. What I find myself wondering, though, is, is that what happened to the old society? They were driven underground, and they realized that they had to android themselves in order to exist. So they did, and then bad happened. Now, I know what you're saying. Laura Rook says in the episode that the old ones built androids and then rebelled against them. Yeah. But they also had the dump you into android tech. You see where I'm going with this? I, th- I like the idea that they basically mandated that for their culture, and rather than having a Total Annihilation-style backstory and becoming the arm, instead what they did was they f- just couldn't handle it, literally could not process the complexities of living, and so started acting in a more basic manner, which, by the way, would lend itself nicely towards Ruck's backstory. They presumed the other androids, the full androids, were a threat. The full androids said, <laughs> okay, Survival must cancel out programming. And that was the end of that. Because the bigger, stronger androids overpowered them. And then a few centuries pass and Rock's the only one left. Okay, all that lines up kind of neatly. It's just interesting to think about. I do like how Kirk manages to break one computer with a kiss and the other computer simply by talking at it. No, No insult intended, that is very Kirk. I also like how at the end Kirk is not happy about all this death. He does treat it as death. He does treat these as life forms, even if they're not human. And it's treated as a tragedy. that, that this, 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 this is how this ends. Ruck dies. Brown dies. The two so, the two red shirts die. Well, I wrote down their names. Matthews and Rayburn. That's right. I wrote down their names. Screw you. <laughs> um, Ruck dies. Andrea dies. Fake Kirk dies. Embracing embracing, oh god, I think I think of his name uh, Corby because the two of them can't cognate exactly what they're thinking or how they're processing and they just kind of they kind of die internally and then conveniently shoot themselves I, I gotta say, by the way for the longest time, it always I always found it really really stupid that they just conveniently suicide here in fact, when I was young, I thought they did it on accident what do you guys think? Accidental or, or deliberate suicide? it's one of the two Either way, Corby was dead years ago. Sorry, chapel. Um, go back to pining over Spock. I'm sure that'll go somewhere someday. Not a bad episode, not bad uh, this is still this is definitely in the upper upper crust of enjoyability rather than some of the drag that we'll get to later. I hope, as always, you've enjoyed my thoughts. See you next time, guys. Whew.